You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. The U.S. Institute for Peace is pleased to welcome you to a conversation on strengthening strategic stability between the U.S and China. This is a very rich and important discussion with many aspects, including the need to find ways to reduce the risks of military and especially nuclear conflict, the need to find ways to manage the tensions created by emerging technologies, and the need to find ways to prevent a destabilizing arms race. Last year, USIP convened a group of 12 leading security experts, six Americans, and six Chinese to engage in a series of dialogues and write parallel essays on the perception gaps, challenges, and opportunities that impact strategic stability between our two countries. The report that we are launching today is based on these dialogues and essays. It shows striking differences, but also commonalities between US and Chinese assessments of the root causes of instability and the drivers of conflict. The report also offers concrete recommendations for consideration by Washington and Beijing. We are very pleased to have six of the report's authors with us this morning to share their findings. We invite everyone to engage with us during this conversation on Twitter with hashtag USIPChina. With your permission, we are very pleased to introduce Dr. Patricia Kim, a member of our Chinese program at USIP and the director of this project. Dr. Kim will be introducing our speakers and facilitating our discussion. Patricia, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Lise. And I wanna thank our speakers and our audience for joining us today for this virtual panel and report launch event. Uh, my name is Patricia Kim, and I had the privilege of directing this project on U.S.-China strategic stability for over the last nine months or so. And it's a real pleasure to be able to publicly share the edited volume that arose from the series of workshops that we held late last year with American and Chinese experts on how Washington and Beijing can enhance strategic stability in an era of growing strategic competition. As Lise mentioned, our report features essays by 12 experts, six American and six Chinese, who contributed parallel essays on the drivers of US-China conflict and potential steps to shore up stability in the nuclear, missile and missile defense, space, cyber and emerging technologies realm. And a very interesting feature of this volume is that all of the authors were asked essentially the same set of questions on how they view each state's respective capabilities, uh, the challenges and opportunities that they see for the United States and China to strengthen stability in their specific realms, and to offer suggestions on concrete steps the two sides can take in the near term. Uh, so by reading these essays side by side, you can really see the gaps, some big and some small, as, where, as well as areas of common interests in U.S. and Chinese perspectives, which I think many readers will find very useful. 
Although each of the essays uh, in the volume stand on their own with their own distinct observations and recommendations, some common themes that repeatedly arose during our workshop discussions and across the volume include the recognition that U.S.-China relations today are beset by a profound lack of trust and mutual skepticism of each other's strategic intentions, and the stark differences in the two states' nuclear doctrines, policies, and interests in arms control pose significant challenges to pursuing strategic risk reduction. In addition, the growing entanglement of conventional and nuclear systems and the potentially destabilizing impact of emerging cyber and AI capabilities have increased the risks of nuclear escalation. Also, U.S.-China strategic stability discussions are further complicated by the fact that they're not just bilateral in nature, but have critical implications for third parties, especially U.S. allies, and are intertwined with regional challenges like the nuclear threat posed by North Korea. Uh, many of the authors in our volume point out that the sharp deterioration in the broader U.S.-China relationship and the disappointment, frankly, with past bilateral exchanges have impeded meaningful dialogue on security-related issues and diminished the political appetite for cooperative measures. So recognizing these challenges, the authors uh, broadly recommend that to strengthen strategic stability in the near term, the United States and China should recognize the growing dangers of military conflict, uh, jointly affirm that nuclear war should never be fought, and work together to reduce the dangers posed by nuclear and increasingly sophisticated conventional weapons. All of the authors also recommend that the United States and China pursue sustained and substantive official bilateral dialogues and parallel Track 1.5 and 2 efforts to increase mutual understanding and to begin exploring risk reduction, crisis management, and arms control measures and jointly work to establish norms of behavior and transparency measures, especially to govern the use of emerging technologies and to regulate developments in space, cyberspace, and, and the application of AI to military capabilities. And finally, um, the authors recommend that, that the US and China engage other key states in these efforts with an eye on strengthening regional and global strategic stability. So to go into greater detail on their respective chapters, five of the 12 report authors, in addition to myself, have joined this panel today. And we have Dr. Brad Roberts, who is the director of the Center for Global Security Research at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy. Uh, we also have Dr. Tong Zhao, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Professor Bruce McDonald, who teaches at SICE and served in the Clinton National Security Council, among many other government capacities, as well as at USIP. Dr. Jinghua Liu, who is the director of the Northeast Asia Program at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, a retired PLA colonel and an expert on cybersecurity issues. And last but not least, Professor Chihao Tian, who is assistant professor at the School of International Studies at Peking University. And I also want to recognize the six other authors who are not with us on this panel today, but contributed excellent essays to the volume. And on the U.S. side, the authors include Frank Rose of the Brookings Institution, Dr. Laura Salmon of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, Dr. Adam Siegel of the Council on Foreign Relations, and on the Chinese side, Professor Li Bin of Tsinghua University, 
Professor Jiang Tianzhao of the Fudan Development Institute and Dr. Guo Xiaobing of the China Institutes of Contemporary and International Relations. Now with that, I'll turn over to our panel of authors for a moderated discussion before we open up for Q&A. And I wanna encourage members of the audience to begin submitting your questions through the event webpage on usip.org. All right, so the first question is for Brad Roberts, who along with Li Bing authored the chapter that provides a broad overview of US and Chinese conceptions of strategic stability. Brad, can you walk us through how thinkers in the United States and China conceptualize strategic stability what would you say are the key differences or areas of convergence when it comes to U.S. and Chinese conceptions? And what are some of the major roadblocks in your view that have prevented the two sides from advancing concrete measures to enhance stability despite years of dialogue? Brad? And you'd like me to do that in three minutes. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, it, is, it is often said that the United States and China take different views of strategic stability. Uh, that that the United States has a narrow view focused on its traditional concerns in the nuclear area about crisis stability and arms race stability. And in, in a juxtaposition, China takes a broader view, goes the argument. It looks more at the structure of the international order uh, and the nature of the nuclear problem it, it confronts in, in that order. There is some truth in this conventional wisdom but uh, at core, we share similar, I, similar concerns about a desire to avoid instabilities that might lead to war and that might lead to nuclear conflict uh, in war. Um, so more similarities actually than differences in my view. Uh, China is concerned fundamentally about the developments in the US strategic posture its missile defenses and its conventional strike capabilities in particular, they call into question or might call into question China's confidence in its own nuclear deterrent. This is a very traditional or quote, narrow understanding of the requirements of strategic stability. Where we have diverged is in our concerns about uh, who's, who's doing damage to stability as it currently exists. Who's making the situation more stable or less stable. And China's analysis is that US actions are the ones that make the situation less stable and more dangerous. Missile defense, conventional strike, for example. Uh, and the, the American view is that China's lack of transparency amidst a major buildup of its nuclear and other strategic capabilities is itself a source of instability. Uh, what, are, what are the barriers to narrowing these, these, these areas of disagreement? Well, we're not talking much. And when we're talking, we're not talking very effectively about these problems. Uh, on, on the, uh, the US contributes a barrier, which is we, we as a nation have been unwilling to answer China's most basic question, which is does the United States accept mutual vulnerability as the basis of the strategic military relationship with, with China? We accept it with Russia, we reject it with North Korea, We've been ambiguous about China. That's a barrier to closure. Uh, and, and China also contributes something as a barrier, and that's this uh, pursuit of um, uh, more, more substantial, more diverse, more modern nuclear capabilities 
in, in a context of very limited transparency. So I hope I hit your three minute mark. Great, oh, that was excellent. Um, and I, I realize it's a big question impossible to answer in three minutes, but you certainly got us off to a good start. So you, you, know, you talked about some of the challenges and the roadblocks um, that have prevented sort of advancing more concrete measures. What would you say are the opportunities um, for, for getting there uh, in this era of growing strategic competition? What steps would you recommend that leaders in Washington and Beijing take in the near term? Well, it's a classic American answer, talk. Uh, it's, it's a part of our strategic culture that we believe we can uh, tackle these problems or at least understand them, but maybe mitigate them, maybe ultimately make them go away through dialogue. Uh, and the dialogue between our two governments on these topics has been very limited. Uh, dialogue at the unofficial level, track one and tra track two and track 1.5 has been more substantial and robust, but it hasn't translated into official dialogue. Uh, if, if we were to actually start talking at the official level about these matters in a sustained and substantive way, uh, I, I think uh, there are a couple, couple of starting points. One, we should agree to disagree about the past and set it aside. Uh, we, we relive, every discussion relives the argument about Americans' missile defense ambitions and China's no first use policies. And we should just agree to disagree and move into the present and the future. And secondly, we should stop asking each other to do things we know the other's not going to do. Um, China is asked repeatedly that the United States uh, uh, abandon its missile defense project in, in East Asia. It, it's not going to. Uh, the United States expects some changes in transparency practices by China that are just not going to happen for the time being. Um, so set, setting aside the old agenda and coming to a new agenda would serve us well. Great, thank you, Brad. Um, I'm gonna turn now to Tong Zhao, who with Bruce McDonald contributed essays on conventional missiles and missile defense, uh, both of which have been points of contention in the US-China discussions about strategic stability. And these discussions are further complicated by the fact that they're not strictly bilateral in nature, as, as Brad alluded to, but involve the security interests of U.S. allies in the region who face a growing missile and nuclear threat posed by North Korea and are also worried about an increasingly militarily capable and assertive China. Uh, so, Tong, can you walk us through some of the challenges that have stood in the way of risk reduction and arms control measures when it comes to um, conventional missiles and missile defense? Sure, um, and let me focus on conventional missiles uh, initially, you know, uh, to start with. Um, I think one obvious obstacle is uh, conventional missiles are viewed as critically important uh, for both China and United States to achieve their national security interests. Uh, in the case of China, uh, China, uh, you know, China's conventional theater range missiles play a very important role in China's plan to defend its uh, territorial claims uh, in, in the region and to achieve its national goal of unification with Taiwan. 
and also there is, you know, unlike nuclear weapons, there is no international taboo on the development and employment of conventional missiles. Uh, it is viewed as fair game for countries to to compete uh, in the development uh, of conventional missiles, and it's, it's okay for countries to actually employ these uh, capabilities. Uh, so these are for real war fighting, which makes uh, such capabilities uh, actually very, uh, very dangerous and risky. And uh, both US and China feel very confident in their capability to eventually outcompete the other side. China has a lot of experience uh, uh, in developing and uh, employing these capabilities. And the US has confidence because it has maybe uh, better expertise and uh, technological capability in the long run. So that self-confidence is also driving uh, arms competition dynamic. And internally in the United States, for example, uh, it is widely agreed that conventional missiles will be very important for the US to check the perceived uh, regional military threats from China. So it is hard for people to argue against investing in such capabilities. And in the case of China, there is lack of domestic checks and balances on uh, national investment into conventional missile capabilities. Uh, you know, the, the, the lack of domestic uh, uh, check and balances is another driver uh, in this bilateral competition. And lastly, I think if we look at uh, theater range uh, conventional missiles, in some cases, uh, there is an increasing degree of entanglement of, uh, between uh, conventional uh, missile capabilities and uh, nuclear missile capabilities. Uh, and that creates new risk of misunderstanding during crises and could lead to even inadvertent escalation. But currently the decision makers have not fully, uh, have not been fully aware of the potential risks. Uh, so uh, the, the, the obstacle is how do we raise awareness of the risks before we can uh, take uh, unilateral or cooperative measures to tackle those risks. Thanks. And in your essay, you talk about another concerning aspect of all of this, and, and, this, and that's an action-reaction cycle between the United States and China that could lead to a costly strategic arms race. And, and you make the case that it's in both states' interests to prevent such a dynamic. Uh, what would you say are some of the factors that are driving this action-reaction cycle, and what are some concrete steps that the two sides can take in the near term on this? Well, um, I think in terms of the development of advanced conventional missiles, uh, in some cases, the programs are really driven by uh, available technologies. Uh, simply because, for example, the technology of hypersonic missiles are becoming available. And therefore, uh, countries uh, invest in them uh, due to the perceived uh, military potential that these technologies might offer in the future. Uh, but in fact, these investments are not sufficiently uh, driven by specific and concrete military needs. Uh, so it is a technology-driven program, and that makes it uh, uh, more likely to lead to action-reaction cycles. China is watching the United States investing in such capabilities, 
and the Chinese investment will then cause concern in the United States. Um, so I think firstly, both countries need to do their own homework. They need to really study what are the real military objectives that these technologies could serve. Uh, so that's the first step. And secondly, even though it is hard to talk about uh, numerical limits on these capabilities in near term, they can, the two countries can certainly work towards uh, limiting the most dangerous uh, methods of employing uh, such capabilities and deploying uh, and developing the most risky types of technologies. For example, uh, do we want to have nuclear and conventional dual-capable hypersonic missiles in the future? It's time to have such discussions before any country has already started uh, acquiring uh, these capabilities. And another, I think, important example of this uh, action-reaction cycle is uh, about the issue of missile defense. Uh, U.S. missile defense is really driving China's investment into its uh, strategic uh, capabilities, and China's development of greater strategic capabilities is, again, uh, causing American concern and making U.S. worry that U.S. is uh, Chinese moving towards a more uh, aggressive military posture um, and uh, the the impact of third party players in this case north korea is also increasingly important uh, north korea's nuclear program is driving u.s missile defense uh, and which is then uh, causing china to uh, react by putting more uh, investment into its uh, offensive capabilities so somehow u.s and china needs to discuss how they can work together to uh, contain North Korea's uh, nuclear program. But uh, in addition to, to, working on, uh, to working on addressing the North Korean threat, uh, US and China can start some near-term uh, uh, joint study. Uh, for example, they can jointly examine whether it is technically feasible for the United States to develop and deploy a strategic missile defense network that can only deal with the North Korean long-range missile threats without undermining China's strategic deterrent. I think that joint study using open source data can be very helpful uh, in mitigating unnecessary threat perception uh, in a bilateral relationship and can contribute to some confidence. Um, um, I think there are other steps, but because of time limit, I will stop here. Great. Thank you, To. I mean, you've put some really interesting ideas on the table, and I'm sure there might be follow-up questions on that. Uh, but I'm going to turn to Bruce now, who I mentioned contributed uh, the parallel essays to Tong's on conventional missiles and missile defense for the volume, but he's joining today in his capacity as an expert on U.S.-China space competition. And so in our volume, uh, we had Frank Rose and Guosha being talk about the heightening U.S.-China strategic competition in space. And so, Bruce, can you walk us through, from the U.S. perspective, some of the concerning developments in space and the challenges to reducing U.S.-China uh, risks and, and, and pursuing arms control in this particular domain, if that makes sense at all, and if this is something we should be looking at? Sure. Uh, thank you, uh, Patty. Uh, this is a... Uh a matter of growing concern within the United States. Uh, the competition, uh, the, the potential for conflict uh, in space. Uh, the United States has uh, far-flung allied responsibilities uh, to many tens of countries, 
And given this worldwide commitment, we are exceptionally dependent upon communications and intelligence that our satellites gather for us. Uh, and uh, so as a result, we are sensitive to issues of their vulnerability. Uh, China has developed a series of, um, a robust series of ground-based uh, uh, anti-satellite uh, weaponry that poses a real danger to the United States uh, space assets on which our forward deployed forces uh, depend. Uh, so this is a matter of some concern. Now, notice that I say ground-based weapons, not space-based. Uh, China and Russia have been, um, uh, they're inclined to talk about space-based weapons and uh, banning uh, space-based uh, offensive forces in space. But the reality is that most space-based we uh, weapons are highly vulnerable to attack. Whereas ground-based systems, the kind that China has really focused on, and understandably from a technical point of view, uh, that uh, China has uh, um, has system, systems that are that are uh, ground-based and are much less vulnerable to uh, attack. Even China's first ASAT test was not a space-based uh, weapon, but it was a ground-based weapon, as are, as I said, most of their counter-space weapons. And uh, Chinese military writings make clear that the PLA sees, sees this and understands, well understands, this U.S. dependence on uh, its space assets as a vulnerability, given that most of our allies and the threats they face are thousands of miles away from the continental United States. And so uh, China's arsenal of these ground-based space weapons pose a direct challenge to uh, U.S. ability to help defend uh, our overseas allies and are a big and growing worry for the United States. Um, in particular, these uh, U.S. satellites that provide uh, important intelligence information uh, and uh, that the Chinese uh, ASAT capabilities are a big worry. Now, that all said, there is, there is a potential for, uh, for doing something about that and uh, I mean, talking, I think one thread that goes through all of the, uh, the essays is the matter of dialogue and discussion. And um, it would be great if the United States and China could resume its space security talks, uh, the last uh, edition of which were held in December of 2016. And it would be a marvelous thing if we could do that. And 1.5 and two track two dialogues that I participated in on this subject, I think that there's kind of a, there's a hunger on both sides to at least get the conversation going and sustain it. So uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, there are real challenges, but I'm hopeful. Great, thanks. Um, in our workshops, the issue of orbital debris featured prominently and, and many of our experts uh, made the case that it's a serious concern that threatens the space systems of both nations and a potential opportunity for U.S.-China cooperation. Can you explain to us briefly sort of what, what is orbital debris, why is it a problem, and how can the United States and China begin to address this challenge? If there is one issue that makes overwhelmingly good sense for the United States and China to pursue together, where our interests are very, very similar, it's the area of orbital debris. 
orbital de debris is, in a way, it's almost what it sounds like. It's uh, it's trash up in space. Uh, the, it consists of old, non-functioning satellites, the upper stages of the launchers that boost those satellites into orbit. And then uh, from just operations there, bits and pieces will fall off. And you say, well, what, what are bits and pieces? But these things at low Earth orbit are orbiting at 17,500 miles per hour. Uh, even a, in the space shuttle, they found a fleck of paint gouged a big hole into the windshield of the space shuttle. Because when you're going 17,500 miles an hour, uh, you can create a lot of, uh, a lot of damage. And so uh, if there's one thing, the China, the US, and all spacefaring nations have an interest in curbing space debris. Uh, one hopeful trend is there are even some private sector companies that are looking at the problem of is it possible to clean up uh, orbits in space? Uh, and one more uh, uh, technological challenge here is that uh, in a good trend, the uh, United States and China and other countries are looking at deploying what are called mega constellations of very small satellites. But uh, each one, man, one man's satellite is another man's uh, uh, debris. What do you do when these things uh, reach the end of their useful life? And we have uh, thousands, tens of thousands of these small satellites before long will be orbiting up there. It's a, it is a big problem. And if you have collisions, the collisions can produce still more debris. I mean, this is a problem for every country to deal with. And, and again, for China and the United States, we have, we have a similar concern. And the one thing is that there has been internationally some attention drawn to this, but um, uh, uh, nowhere near enough and a lot more steps are, are needed. Uh, we keep in mind that when China did its anti-satellite test in early 2007, um, that increased the amount of debris with that one shot, one test, by 15%. If we have any more uh, of that, it's going to be a serious problem. I mean, one norm that we can maybe agree to, I hope, uh, would be simply to not have any more tests of anti-satellite weapons that smash into and create uh, debris. Uh, that's just unnecessary. There's been a de facto norm on that, although India conducted the test uh, not too long ago. Although even there, India was careful and they conducted the test so that the debris would fall out of orbit very quickly. Not or as the Chinese uh, ASAT test debris will be in orbit for the next hundred years. So, um, and to its credit, China has not repeated a test like that. I think that there's a real possibility for joint cooperation on the field of space debris. Great, thank you, Bruce. Uh, my next question is for Jinghua, who along with Adam Siegel wrote essays on the cyber domain, which is also becoming an increasingly salient domain of conflict uh, with the potential for clashes in cyberspace to escalate into kinetic a conflict. So Jinghua, in your chapter, you talk about some uh, key challenges and risks that the United States and China face in advancing stability in cyberspace. Can you give us a brief outline of these challenges and risks that you talk about? Uh, sure. Uh, 
And we all know that the issues in cyberspace has been already very complicated, but when it interwaves with nuclear, it just adds more complexity. So let me start from the difficulties in uh, cyberspace. Uh, the first is, uh, because of the inherent nature of cyberspace, it really makes it extremely difficult to understand the real uh, time attribution and uh, the uh, capability to differentiate between <laughs> cyber espionage and cyber attack, and also very difficult to control the damage of cyber activities. And because of the uh, tensions between the two countries, uh, when there is some cyber activity detected, it's very easy for one side to think that this is a uh, uh, attack rather than espionage. This is deliberate rather than just a mistake of uh, of to be over of uh, cyber activities. To think this is uh, uh, being done by the other country uh, or but endorsed by the other country rather than uh, being done by some other act actors. So the second uh, challenge we have to face is China and US actually assessing their capabilities in cyberspace very differently. Uh, China view itself as a relatively weak side, thinking that uh, U.S. understands that China is not that ambitious and uh, will not benefit from being preemptive. But the U.S. seems to uh, feel that very differently. They think China has already been quite similar uh, in terms of its capabilities. So uh, they really think China is very ambitious and also uh, U.S. feels itself especially vulnerable because it's more dependent on cyber, uh, on cyber infra infrastructure. Um, in, and the third challenge we have to understand is a third party. Unlike some other domains, uh, we don't know who is the real originator of cyber activities. So third, third parties can take full advantage of that. And also the two countries can use that to try to bury their intentions. And when it uh, gets to the cyber nuclear dynamics, uh, there are two, another two uh, challenges that's really worth attention. The first is the lack of communication between the two, uh, two domains because of the modernization of nuclear uh, capabilities. Uh, we know there are more cyber vulnerabilities there, but no one can really understand it. So there will be more motivations and more concerns. And also the two people in two domains are viewing the security in a very different way. Cyberspace, people always think uh, attacks is something very normal, but in nuclear area, uh, security means zero attack. So cyber people may uh, not understand how much threat they have posed, but people in nuclear uh, arena may also over overinterpret the intentions of cyber attack. So let me stop there. There are a lot of challenges. So I hope this is helpful. Great, thank you, Jinghua. Um, so you, know, you listed out a variety of challenges um, and uh, to, and you talked about sort of the issues of transparency in the cyber realm, and, and you make the case that, um, mm -hmm. you know, in your essay, that even if complete transparency of capabilities isn't possible, 
Uh, we might work towards transparency of intentions or postures, as well as crisis management mechanisms and potential self-restraints um, to serve as stabilizing forces. So can you walk through some of the measures that you recommend in your paper that Washington and Beijing adopt to mitigate some of the challenges that you laid out? Yes, thank you for that question. So I think there are quite a lot of things we can do. The first is just like you said, it's very important to understand each other at least about their uh, intentions. So I think the first thing is about to build trust. It's not uh, really, uh, it's not so realistic to think the two countries can become friends again, but at least uh, they can uh, convey the basic uh, understanding that no one is interested in starting a war with the other side, especially uh, a nuclear war. And the second is about uh, whether we can do some steps to improve the uh, step, uh, crisis management, like whether the two sides can uh, have some track two or track one dialogues to identify those activities that are, that are really destabilizing or the activities that can help uh, stabilize uh, situation. And also about crisis management, it's important to, to uh, expand the current collaboration on information sharing. We have some information sharing mechanism between the two thirds uh, computer emergency response teams, but uh, the strategic level information are not included. And also, I think the two countries can think of build, uh, expanding the previous efforts about CBMs. They have two MOUs, multiplication of major activities and uh, use of behavior in uh, maritime and air encounter, whether we can think of expanding that into cyberspace. And also, I think it's really important to have more chances for people from cyber domain and the nuclear world to talk with each other, to understand uh, the other side's uh, basic logic and concerns. And the third uh, area I think that could help is to have some uh, restraints. It can be mutual, but it also can be uh, unilateral. Uh, so there could be some uh, mutual agreement um, not to uh, conduct several intrusions into each other's nuclear command and control uh, system. And they can also uh, agree with each other that uh, the several operations will be under the uh, authorization of the highest level leaders from both sides. And they can also uh, think about uh, and, uh, some, uh, some measures to oversight the third party activities. And not, last but not least, the two countries should not give up their efforts on uh, promoting international rules and norms in cyberspace. It may be not uh, directly relevant, but it will uh, build uh, trust and also uh, promote stability in cyberspace. So let me stop here. Great, thank you very much. Uh, finally, last but not least, we will turn to Chiao Tian, who is our expert on AI. And as Chi, uh, Chi and Laura both point out in their respective essays, uh, rapid advancements in artificial intelligence 
and its incorporation into military capabilities by both the U.S. and China have raised concerns about the impact of AI on current and future conflict dynamics. So, Haotian, can you describe for us where the United States and China are in terms of military applications of AI and the risk to strategic stability posed uh, by these advancing capabilities? Sure. Thank you, Patty. Uh, the efforts of AI-enabled military modernization in both the U.S. and China share actually many features of structural, doctrinal, and technological tra transformations. As my dear colleague, uh, Dr. Laura Selman, pointed out, the integration of AI in military capabilities in some areas, for example, um, nuclear forces, remains limited. And yet, we both believe that the two militaries are receiving increasingly stronger political and financial support, although the economic conditions and the budget politics in both countries have actually been creating constraints. The both militaries invest very heavily and systematically in a series of uh, projects in different mission areas and domains, such as autonomous command and control systems, predictive operational planning, a better fusion of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or ISR, decision support systems, indicator indications and warning systems, and vehicles and weapon systems with significant AI-driven components. So all this development of uh, AI-enabled capabilities have given rise to lots of concerns. Uh, we believe that, broadly speaking, the concerns can be categorized into several broad topics, safety and reliability, uh, the use of AI in high-risk contexts, such as nuclear AI nexus. Uh, third, transparency with respect to strategies, principles, and doctrine, etc. Fourth, accordance uh, with international law, and then proliferation of AI military technologies. Uh, all these concerns include both technical risks, such as system errors or mistakes, a lack of relevant training data, bias in algorithms or training models, as well as risks associated with human decision makers, such as human machine interaction failures and the potential for AI to compress decision cycles beyond the capability of humans to respond. In particular, um, we focus and pay attention to some specific issues that potentially influence or even can shape future strategic stability between and beyond the two countries, such as uh, some inherent, inherent limitations of uh, AI in the current sta state, or someone put in narrow AI, um, which largely relies on high-quality data for training. Uh, but when training data is limited, artificial neural networks are prone to making poor generalization. And systems trained with specific data sets are susceptible to adversarial ad attacks, biases, and data manipulation. And also a question of human-machine interaction. As many observers and practitioners point out in various occasions, there's a lack of explainability, which creates uncertainties in human-machine interactions. Most algorithms are still in the black box, a black box stage. It's difficult for us to fully understand and assess why an AI system has made a particular choice, especially when it behaves unexpectedly. And also, we focus on the new dynamics in nuclear AI uh, nexus. The advancements in AI gives, may give leading powers, leading nuclear powers, greater opportunities to limit the deterrence capabilities of a minor power. And that will create some cycling uh, new dynamics, which leads to in new type of instability in strategic balance. 
And also, also there is a question of borderline between the, uh, the, 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 the borderline between conventional and the nuclear forces, uh, which is also being created problems with the rise of AI. Uh, we can discuss the discuss all these issues in more detail, but all in all, we believe that both beneath and beyond what is going on in the development of concrete projects capabilities, there's a kind of new system of language and understanding being created by state practices in AI-related capability. Uh, but neither side is effectively able to translate the signals sent by the other. Uh, and a similar dynamic could also be found in history when there was major technological and associated doctrinal strategic transitions in military and security domains. And that's why we think that, you know, it's a time of, it's a, it's, it's a point of time that we really need to build some confidence building measures and, and take concrete steps for better governance. Thanks, Hatian. You know, in terms of confidence building measures, as well as the strong interest that you talk about um, that two sides have in developing, com developing common understandings of the implications of AI for the future of warfare, um, what would you say are some concrete steps that Washington and Beijing can take to address the concerns uh, that you laid out or in your in your answer to the earlier questions and and what kind of specific topics or agreements do you think should be prioritized in bilateral and or in multilateral settings? Uh, both Laura and I believe that two countries should broadly speaking start establishing systematic confidence building measures and develop a shared understanding of what a future AI-enabled military transformation might entail, as well as its, its uh, strategic impacts. And, and, and in addition to that, uh, a concrete step in the near term, we think, is a direct talk. Uh, we may need more direct dialogue in the near to medium term, although there are many dialogues existing between the industry experts, ag academias, the think tanks, uh, in and between, both in and between the two countries, like what we have been doing over here, but more direct exchanges among the diplomats, military leaders, AI researchers, and multidisciplinary scholars is crucial for fostering mutual understanding and opening avenues for future cooperation. Uh, in the long run, there are some both not very feasible uh, and, 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 and feasible steps that we can envision and take. Uh, transparency in the long run is crucial to building confidence, building, uh, confidence between militaries. You can assist each other in assessing actions of coercion, concern, and avoid misperceptions which could lead to unintended escalation. Uh, there are some feasible things in the long run that we believe we can, we can do. For example, the two sides can sit together and define and wrap order some areas of concerns that each has with regard to the other. In addition, there is a shared interest in the counter-proliferation of lethal autonomous weapons or laws. Uh, given the broader political clim uh, climate between the two nations at present, some things, are not very, some things are not very easy. For example, it would be very beneficial and should be taken when circumstances allow that China and the United States to increase transparency and enhance mutual uh, uh, regarding their AI strategies, doctrines, and other related documents. Uh, but at present, it's, it's probably very difficult to achieve that step. Uh, but just as JFK stated on the mission to Moon, we do these things not because they're easy. He said that for winning a competition. And, and we think that we need this idea now for regulating a competition. All right, I, I, will, see, I will stop here, Patty, for the Q&A session. 
Great. Well, thank you very much, Hao Tian. And I uh, just want to thank all the, the authors for their initial remarks. And we're getting a lot of questions in the chat function. And so I, um, if we're audience members, I encourage you to submit your questions and we'll be monitoring the box. Uh, but some of the, one of the themes that's been coming up in the chat box is sort of the need for mill-to-mill uh, -mill dialogues, for track-one dialogues between the United States on, and China uh, to mitigate risks. And um, among you know, many of the questions, there's people are asking, well, is there willingness in both countries to reinvigorate these channels? And Brad talked about this a bit um, earlier and how, why there have been hiccups in, in um, previous dialogues and sort of the, the disappointment with lack of progress. Uh, I want to turn to maybe our Chinese particip participants and ask, what would you say are the necessary conditions for uh, Beijing and Washington to be able to engage in sustained and high-level dialogues on strategic stability or broader uh, conflict-related issues. How ready do you think the two sides are and what could they do to lay the groundwork? So let me see if I could turn to Tong to get at this question first. And then maybe we can circle back to the American side to see if there are ideas as well that um, they'd like to put forth. So Tong, over to you. Sure, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, you know, given the uh, uh, great power competition between the two sides. Uh, it's really hard for countries to be really interested in uh, restraining their uh, capability to develop new military technologies. Uh, they are also unlikely to be interested in numerical limit on their strategic capabilities. Uh, but I think uh, if you frame the uh, framework of discussion not as arms control or numerical uh, limits but as uh, strategic stability just as this project uh, does or to emphasize uh, the issue of risk reduction i think on, on those topics there are certainly uh, very strong uh, mutual interests and china very clearly recognize uh, recognizes that mutual interest and, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, I think can be done in order to strengthen strategic stability or to uh, uh, reduce uh, risks of conflicts, including nuclear conflicts. And many of these uh, measures involve uh, new technologies that are covered uh, by this project. Uh, so I will stop here without going into the specific technological areas, but I just say that it depends on how we frame the discussion and uh, which specific issues we, we start with. Uh, if we are smart with it, uh, we can do a lot of productive uh, cooperation together. Great. Talk. Thank you. I'm going to actually turn it to Brad. Um, Brad, I know you mentioned uh, initially that you know one way that the two sides can maybe have a more productive conversation is to set aside demands that the other is not likely to embrace. Do you have some other uh, suggestions for how to make uh, uh, you know a substantive and sustained Track 1.5 or one dialogue, uh, given that you've been involved in many of these for years? Well, I, th I think uh, the substantive agenda is well set out in your product, Patty. Uh, it's it's comprehensive across these these topical issue areas. 
Uh, it, it involves um, exploring mutual risks and, and, and mutual obligations to reduce those risks. Uh, I think there hasn't really been any great um, uncertainty about the content of a dialogue if we were to launch one. Uh, the, the reality is that the, the government of China has not seen it as in China's interest. Uh, and, and this is in part because um, your formulation, Patty, that we have, we have mutual risk and it's important to reduce them. That hasn't been the traditional way of Chinese thinking about this, Chinese government way of thinking about this. China's government has been interested in creating more risk for the United States because this is essential to deterrence. And China has feared the, the uh, use of uh, American military supremacy in ways that would touch on core interests in Chinese sovereignty. Uh, now, we may be at a tip over point here where there's sufficient interest in risk and shared risk and um, reducing risk uh, that, that new things are possible. Um, let me add one point on, on your, your, your question about how ready are we for this? How ready is the U.S.? Um, th this project has brought out vividly the high quality of thinking in China on these questions. Uh, the papers are all excellent. The discussion was excellent. Uh, China has invested in the institutions and the people and the intellectual capital for this kind of dialogue. Uh, we held up our end of the bargain on the American side, but this isn't an area where the U.S. has put much focus, investment, interest, and created much intellectual capital. Uh, we, we, we've heard a, uh, from both Moscow and Beijing a, a general disinterest in dialogue in this area, so we've put good people onto other topics. So we have a little intellectual capital to create of our own and able to, in order to enable the needed dialogue. Uh, and, and kudos to the Peace Institute for, for putting some new ideas on the table in that direction. Great, thank you. Um, I actually have a question from the chat that would be perfect for Bruce and Jinghua. So let me read it out for you. Is there a way for the United States and China to set rules to diminish the danger of a cyber war or a space war? So let's turn it to Jinghua first for her answer, and then I'll go over to Bruce. Oh, well, I think, um, yeah, this is a good question. And I think this is why we are sitting here to try to think of. But I have to say that Go is a bit, uh, still a bit ambitious in the current stage. Um, like I said before, there are still some very basic differences uh, regarding whether there should be a military militarized cyberspace, uh, whether we uh, should go to talk about rules uh, regulating cyber operations, or whether we should discuss more about how can we bring cyberspace back to a peaceful domain that can benefit every country. So, uh, but the risks are already there. And so for me, I would say we should, maybe we should start from uh, setting up some uh, frameworks or dialogues to firstly understand each other's major uh, intentions and explain their policies together and try to know uh, what are they, uh, 
what are the goals of the other side. And then uh, we think about what are the uh, shared risks and then think about how to how to mitigate them. So I agree that they are uh, is very uh, Im important to think talk about uh, rules regulating war, uh, operations. But I'd like to start uh, from the more basic step. Thank you, Bruce. We are, um, if I were to sum it up, I would sum it up in two words. One would be for, especially for first steps in getting started, would be norms and uh, vulnerabilities. I think that uh, we would, there is a crying need to establish norms. Uh, sadly, in the United States for space, uh, sadly, in the United States, there was reluctance on the part of uh, our Defense Department, it seemed to me, to be willing to engage on establishing norms, even though in air and maritime environments, there are rules of the road and norms of behavior. You want to reduce the possibility for inadvertent escalation. And I think there's a very productive discussion that we could have with China in that area. Uh, the other way is understanding, and, and Brad, I like particularly your comment about, about risk and uh, that China in some ways wants to increase uh, United States risks, um, but that in the U.S. space structure, there now is uh, a much greater appreciation than there was, say, a decade ago for um, resilient, you know, the emphasis of resilience so that uh, the idea being to uh, reduce the temptation for uh, an adversary to want to initiate uh, a hostile action. Uh, for example, uh, to cite my uh, colleague, uh, for, uh, an author of the space, one of the space chapters, Frank Rose, he said the United States uh, needs to stop building big, fat, juicy targets in space. Uh, and we're doing that with uh, uh, going through a disaggregated uh, satellite structure so that it's much more difficult to gain a decisive advantage. So I think that uh, uh, the United States, for example, can do unilaterally. But the idea of norms and rules of the road is something that needs to be done uh, cooperatively. Uh, that won't answer all our problems and not guarantee that you won't have escalation but it sure would be a, a, a positive step in the right direction. Great, thank you, Bruce. I have a question for Hao Tian. Uh, Hao Tian, in your essay, you talk about how AI, you know, is a very complex topic. And if you were to, um, you really need to bring a lot of different types of people into the room to have good conversations, whether it's industry experts or academics or military leaders and so on. What can you talk through us sort of you know, who do we need to engage? Who who should be at the table? And what are some existing multilateral mechanisms that might be good um, venues for engagement between the U.S. and China on the topic of AI? Thank you, Patty. I think uh, I will start with what we are starting with, with this group of, uh, you know, excellent people and minds, because uh, we are really still at a very early and initial stage of building a governance framework or frameworks. But more than often, we from different countries, different areas, different disciplines, 
or different backgrounds uh, cannot even reach agreement on even the meanings of very basic principles of AI governance. Uh, so, well, so what kind of people do we need? I think I would like to share one of my uh, observations on one issue that AI observers um, in United States uh, care very much about the development in China, which is the uh, military-civil fusion. The, the American observers tend to see this term in a negative tone uh, or uh, as a way that China accumulate power from the market, from the civilian sectors to increase military power, military might. Uh, it is not incorrect, uh, but I would not say that the civil-military fusion per se in China also in, in US in a different way, uh, necessarily increase difficulties of security governance. Uh, there is both technological and social aspects of this fusion happening. The fusion has been helpful actually in nurturing a culture of professional and technically speaking acceptable level of transparency from the China side, for example. So if I bring a group of people here, I think that's the major goal of having the, the, the civilian, the military, the industry, and, and business, and research uh, uh, communities discuss together is to, mute, to nurture this culture. And I think this culture and habit of transparency, of dialogue, is also something that, in the previous questions, uh, very fundamental to a better interactive pattern between the two countries. Great. Well, thank you very much, Hao Tan. And on that note, um, we are at time, and so we're going to have to conclude our event today. But I want to thank all of our speakers for really thoughtfully uh, work, working us through uh, so many issues in just one hour. Um, again, I want to encourage folks who are tuning in who haven't seen the report yet to please go to the USIP website, take a look. Um, there are fantastic essays by all 12 authors that really go into much greater depth on what the US and China need to do to shore up stability in across six domains. And so please go and take a look. I wanna thank all of our speakers for joining today, especially our speakers who joined from China. I know it's a late hour, so appreciate you um, coming. And um, again, it's just a real pleasure to be able to launch this project after working together for nine months. And so my deepest appreciation again to all of the project participants, the authors, um, the USIP staff who made this possible, and Lise uh, Grande who joined us today to open up this event. All right, so with that, I will bring the meeting to a close. Thank you again, and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.